How's it going? Susan Ruth here, and on this episode of Hey Human, I speak with Mr. Paul Fallon, who I met and chatted with in the same day. Uh, We have some mutual friends. Well, actually, he has a friend who's a friend of a friend of mine, so, and it's not Kevin Bacon, but anyway, we chatted about his journey across America on his bicycle, and it's really interesting, and he's also an architect. He's retired, but he he spent his whole life being an architect, building hospitals and such, and in fact, after 2010, after that big earthquake in Haiti, he went back and forth to Haiti and helped rebuild there as well, and ended up adopting a couple kids in Haiti, a couple brothers. And by adopting, I shouldn't say adopting, not adopting. That was the wrong word. But I'm not going to edit it because people make mistakes. And I'm one of those people. Sponsoring. More like sponsoring than adopting. You know, he he gives money to help with their education and their food and their shelter and that sort of thing. Anyway, he wrote a book about that experience. The book is called Architecture by Moonlight. And of course, as always, there are links on heyhumanpodcast.com that uh, will lead you to the things that we talked about in this conversation. And um, yeah, as always, please uh, find me on iTunes under Hey Human and subscribe, write a review, tell your friends about it. It really helps um, to get the word out and get the numbers up on iTunes. They like that kind of thing. And I very much appreciate it. So without further ado, um, oh, I should also mention, well, I already mentioned heyhumanpodcast.com. You know about that one, but I'm on Instagram, instagram.com slash heyhumanpodcast, which is attached to a Twitter that, in all honesty, I never look at, really. I just attach it to the Instagram. I should probably be better about that, but one can only do so much, you know what I'm saying? There is a Hey Human Podcast Facebook And if you want to email me, if you have ideas or you have questions or anything at all, um, I like good recipes, that too. Uh, That would be susan at heyhumanpodcast.com. Okay, that's that. Hope you enjoy and have a really good day, night, afternoon, minute, second, hour, whatever it is. Love ya. Bye. Hi, Paul. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Wonderful. Paul Fallon bicycled on in to my life this morning. <laughs> uh, you are an interesting character. And I'm so happy you're here on Hey Human. Thank you for being here. I'm happy to be here too. So before I dig into, so you're an architect? Yes, I am, Susan. And you're an author? Yes, I am. <laughs> and you're a humanitarian, clearly. I would call you a humanitarian because okay. of the work you did in Haiti. I will take that. Yeah, and... You are now riding across America on your bicycle, and so let's start with, and in a way, I think, so, and you're a humanist, because I feel like you wouldn't I am be, definitely a humanist. Yeah. Let's start, I guess, at the beginning. Let's, let's go back a little bit. What, what puts you on your, your path? So, I, I'm 61 years old. I was born in the 50s. My father did construction. And I always wanted to be an architect because I learned early on that the architect was the guy my father listened to. (laughs) That's only somewhat facetious. 
but I like to draw. And I mean, as a child, I knew I wanted to be an architect. So that was always a lifelong ambition. I was a very good little doobie. I went to college, architecture school, followed my profession quite linearly. And I designed hospitals, mostly in the United States, but also a little internationally for over 32 years. And it was a very satisfying career. And in 2007, someone in my office sent out an email and said, hey, we know a group in Haiti that wants someone to design a clinic. Does anybody want to help them? So I said, sure. So I always say, be careful how you answer an email because it changed my life. So I started to work with a group in Haiti to design a clinic. I went to visit Haiti in 2009, which, of course, now we refer to as before the earthquake. At the time, we didn't use that phrase. But when the earthquake happened in January of 2010, I just felt like that there was a need for me to get more involved. I had been to Haiti. I loved the country. I loved the people. Uh, So I looked for opportunities to become more involved in Haiti and eventually wound up designing and supervising construction of two buildings there and lived there half time through 2012 where I was alternating two weeks in Haiti, two weeks in the United States with another person to supervise construction. This eventually led to the book that I wrote which is called Architecture by Moonlight and the book is really about the transitions and the incredible disconnects between the wealthiest nation in the world and the poorest nation in our hemisphere and the fact that we are the two oldest republics in the Western Hemisphere. The United States and Haiti. And Haiti. You know, the United States became an independent country in 1776 and Haiti in 1803. And from there, there is so little in common in our histories and our trajectories because we were a country of great resources, great capacity to expand. Uh, I always like to note that when we became an independent country, the average American was already wealthier than the average person in England, who was the mother country. Haiti, on the other hand, was a black republic. Few countries would recognize them. They had no connection to the external world. They were limited on an existing island. And Haiti had been a 95% African-American state. It had a higher proportion of slaves than any other colonial country. And so when it became independent, it had very few leaders. It had very little capacity to, to lead. The whole world turns its back on it and let it go. But I actually found Haiti to be a wonderful country and a country that we could learn a lot from if we were so inclined the nature of our attitude towards Haiti is to compare it to the way we are and to the way we live and find it lacking. And that is a perfectly rational way of thinking. But we don't look at some of the things in our culture that we might benefit from in terms of community and connectedness and understanding that we can't be in something on our own. They're very family-centric, are they not? I would say they are community-centric more than family-centric. We're fences, they are... Yes. Well, we are, you know, our strengths are our individualism and our initiative and our innovation. And their strength is an understanding that they are in it together. And when I say it's community-focused more than family-focused, family has a very different connotation there. Mm -hmm. 
and there are so many people, that, especially since the earthquake, there are so many people who don't have a complete intact nuclear family that family gets extended in terms of who you take care of. So there's a, a sense in Haiti, there's a way in which you describe the number of children you have as the number of young people for whom you are responsible. It's not a matter of whether or not they are your child by birth. Mm. It's whether you, you and it's whether you take responsibility for them and that you're going to be responsible for steering them. Are there a great many orphans in Haiti at this point? There are not as many orphans as there are orphanages. Um, <laughs> Haiti, <laughs> Haiti has lots and lots and lots of orphanages. And it is a mixed blessing because the reality is orphanages get built in Haiti because they are something that people will give money to. So this is it's kind of a subtext of my book is the sort of thinking about philanthropy and how philanthropy is not just about the needs of the people who may be uh, lacking something, but has so much to do with the agenda of the people who are giving the money. Absolutely. And so Haiti is full of orphanages because orphanages are something that groups can raise money for. And the truth is, the an, an orphanage is one of the buildings I designed uh, and helped to build. There was a family from Massachusetts whose daughter was a college student. She was on a trip in Haiti. Uh, for a week and on the second day of her trip the earthquake happened and she died in the earthquake so they built an orphanage in her honor which is an, an incredibly a wonderful and noble thing and a great way to sort of um, to express their grief in a positive way however less than half of the children who live in that orphanage are orphans um, most of the for many of the people in orphanages the people in the town realize that kids in the orphanage have more opportunities. They have three square meals a day, they have school, um, you get better health care, and so people will put their children in orphanages. And you have visiting days on Sundays where families come and visit their kids. So That's extraordinary. So from one perspective, it's really great because we're providing opportunities for the next generation. But on another perspective, we're really undermining the family structure because we don't. It's it, you. It's hard to raise money to support families in Haiti. You can raise money to build orphanages and support orphans in Haiti, and so it's a kind of a double-edged sword. Yes, yeah. yes, and, and not exactly catch twenty-two. I guess clear. Right, yes, yeah. so people, you know, it's. It's like one of these things where people adopt an orphan and they have a relationship with that orphan and they give money every month to support that orphan. But that quote-unquote orphan may in fact have a family. In fact, more than half of them do. Oh, that's interesting. Um, Don't stop giving money to Haiti, though, people. Right. <laughs> right. No, I'm not... Again, I don't, I'm not finding fault with the system so much as finding that when I was immersed in the system at that level, I just decided that it's, it's not where I want to continue to spend my energies because it's impossible to be involved in philanthropy and not represent the interests of the, the giver. Yeah. I think that's why there's that, that phrase in the Bible that says, let not the left hand know what the right hand is doing, to take the ego out of the philanthropy. 
and yes. the agenda out of the philanthropy. But, you know, human beings by their very nature are full of that ego, so... It's pretty hard. It's pretty hard to do It's that. very hard to do that. Please eat. I mean, I so, have no problem with you eating. Oh, okay. Uh, they, they, can, they can handle a few chewing okay. there. I know you, you wrote... How many miles did you ride today? In, in today day. was a relatively easy day. I did 58 miles today. Wow. I came from Bell Buckle, Tennessee, yes, sure. mm-hmm. a little artsy town where I stayed last night. And I had a beautiful ride this morning. And then I came through McFersboro. Murfreesboro. Murfreesboro, mm-hmm. which has a terrific, uh, a wonderful, wonderful greenway path along the river. And that path gets integrated with the Stone River Battlefield Monument. Mm. So I learned all about the Stone River Battle just because it was along the way as I was yeah. coming. It was very, very good. Yeah, it's your, so you're on your bicycle because, let's, let's segue into that, it's a natural segue. Right. So the reason I'm on my bicycle is directly related to my experience in Haiti. So when I completed my time, my work and my efforts in Haiti, I realized that I had a point of view about Haiti that wasn't getting represented and so I decided to write a book about it and I compiled my blogs and edited it and put together this book. At the same time, I realized that as I understood the United States differently from my experience of having lived in Haiti, that I actually wanted to get to understand the United States more. I wanted to get to understand the United States better. So I had taken a bicycle trip six years ago from Denver to Boston. I live in Boston, that's my home base. And uh, most of my family lives in Denver. And that was a pretty awesome experience and that was really all about me and the bike and can I ride, can I do it physically? And this effort was more about trying to connect to the country in a deeper way. So I decided I wanted to ride to all 48 contiguous states. So my trip, I have, Tennessee is the 42nd state I've been in I have already logged over 15,000 miles, so I've crossed the country several times at this point. And I have uh, four to 5,000 miles more to go until I am finished. Then I decided, well, how do I want to engage with people? And I decided that I wanted to ask people a question as I go. So the question that I ask people as I travel is, how will we live tomorrow? And I have talked to literally thousands of people on my journey. I talk to some people on a kind of scheduled, organized way. So, for example, tomorrow in Nashville, I'm meeting with some people at the Nashville Entrepreneurial Center to mm-hmm. talk about tomorrow. And I'm also meeting with a country western musician. <laughs> to so talk which one? A guy named Dana Cooper. Okay. Um, so that's pretty exciting for me. Uh, and... So I meet different people as I travel, and sometimes I have organized pieces. Every day, I force myself to ask at least one random stranger to go up and talk to somebody and hand them my card, tell them what I'm doing, and ask them how we live tomorrow. And I get a lot of quizzical looks, but I also get a lot of really interesting spontaneous answers. And then I stay with individuals who invite me to their homes. I have been gone for over 290 days. I've stayed with over 200 different people who have either heard about my trip through friends or friends of friends or friends of friends of friends (laughs) or 
uh, web, my blog or my website or Susan who invited me tonight just yes. because it was the convenient time for us to podcast and I said well I can't really cycle in the dark she said well then just crash here so that's uh, what happens and those are really wonderful opportunities because you have more time to kind of talk to someone about tomorrow yeah and then you actually wake up the next morning hopefully and uh, sometimes people have additional thoughts <laughs> as they've slept on the so question. So are you recording these? Are you writing them down? How's your... Yes. Yeah. So I have a website, which is howwillwelivetomorrow.com. And it has two very different components that coexist. Every day I write what's called a trip blog, and that's for the bike fans. It has photos, how many miles I did, what the weather was like my progress, and it's it's a travel log that talks about the experience of riding the bicycle. And oftentimes it gets into where my head is going or something that I saw that was kind of interesting. In addition, everyone that responds to my question, I include on the blog. So once a week I do a, a kind of a tally of responses, but then four or five times a week I write what I refer to as profiles. So when I go to the National Entrepreneurial Center and I talk to people about the work they do, I will, I, they will have a separate blog entry that will talk about them as a group, how did they get formed, what is it that's interesting about what they do, and then at some point in the conversation I will ask whoever I'm talking to, how will we live tomorrow? And their answers may be related to their business or their professional life, but are, are just as often not. Which I, find I find really interesting. Intriguing that you're asking how will we live tomorrow instead of how will you or I live tomorrow. So we is the key word. Yes. That really. <laughs> about a third of the people disregard. Really? And that's fine. I, 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 I always ask the question the same way, but I allow people to rephrase as they want. Mm -hmm. um, as, I always, as I often say, this isn't a question I could ask in China. I worked in China, and in China, people would just say, well, we will live the way we're told. I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but basically. The reason it is how we will live tomorrow is because even though we are a nation that has an incredible spirit of individualism, there are now more than 300 million of us, and things have changed since 1776. We no longer have an ongoing empty frontier that a million people can populate however they want. Uh, we keep bumping up in, against each other, you know, and I believe, I, I guess part of what led me to ask this question is that as I look at the world around us, I often think that the strengths of our country are liabilities in a global society. And, you know, people... People can determine we however they like. I mean, they can ignore it and say, I. I mean, a good number of people begin their response with the word I, so that's okay. Uh, or they can talk about their family. They can talk about their community. They can talk about this country. They can talk about the world. I mean, I, I don't define we beyond the idea that I use the um, plural, singular plural pronoun to help suggest that it's not a self-centered question. Okay. Uh, that's also why I use the word tomorrow as opposed to asking how people will live in the future, 
When you ask someone how we're going to live in the future, you have disconnected it from today, and so you invite flights of fantasy. Tomorrow, whether you define it as 24 hours from now or 10,000 years from now, grows out of today. It always does. Mm-hmm. Um, so the the word the question actually took a long time to to phrase out. <laughs> um, it's also a how question because. I wanted it to be as sort of fundamentally rooted as possible. It's not a why or a what question. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a logistical question. It's a rare person who responds to it in a logistical way. But I ask it that way. I just want the question to be as realistic and grounded as such an ethereal question can be. Right. You know? Yeah. I can't wait to answer it. So, <laughs> there you go. Again, I'm a humanist, so I heard the word we right away because it makes the most sense. Yeah, to me, we is the most important question, the most important word in the question. Yeah. It's the the thing that sets it apart. And it is also the thing that is the most challenging for Americans because we don't live in a society where the collective is stressed. Right. And I. We are Hugh. Although, do you remember it, that? Did you, are you a Star Trek fan? No. Uh, when they encountered the Borg and they captured one of the, the Borg is a collective, uh-huh. high, a hive mind alien, and with a queen, and then the hive mind serves mm-hmm. the queen, and it was a great episode. And Hugh, they so they they had a they had a captive, and they named him Hugh, and they tried to teach him right. that he was an individual, and mm-hmm. he kept saying, "We are Hugh, we are Hugh." <laughs> That's course, great. The end, the climax is him saying, "I am you," but mm-hmm. it's fabulous. Yeah, <laughs> it's. Um, but China, it would be a hive mind, I suppose. Well, in a way, relatively speaking. Yeah, you know, in a way, relatively speaking. North Korea, sadly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, to an extreme. To an extreme. Right. Yeah. Definitely to an extreme. Yeah. So you. You were going to Haiti 17 times for work, or did you retire? Did you? I mean, now oh, you've been gone all this right. time. Right, so I retired. Um, I st- stopped working full-time when I started going to Haiti on a regular basis, and I completely retired three years ago. Mm. Yeah, I'm, I am a very fortunate person. You know, I was 58 years old when I stopped working completely. That is fortunate. And I was healthy and I did not have to didn't need the resources um, anymore and I believe that it really changes the way you think about how you're going to spend your time I felt like it was a much bigger responsibility to think about how I was going to utilize my time being retired you mean? when I didn't have the money as an issue mm-hmm. you know it's mm-hmm. like I had I had no reason not to do something meaningful both to me and hopefully to others and you mentioned children you have your own I have children. two children mm-hmm. and yeah they're 25 and 27 what do they think about this oh they kind of roll their eyes and shrug when dad says he's going to go ride his bike all over the place yeah <laughs> um, I mean I have my daughter is 27 she's very adventurous she's been many more places over the world that I have and she was a Peace Corps volunteer and oh. so she's been traveled a lot and my son is a home buddy who um is who works they right now they're both in our hometown in massachusetts uh and but they're accepting i actually credit my son with the whole start of it my son hiked the appalachian trail when he was 19 and he came back so 
so transformed that it was incredible. And he inspired me to do my very first long distance bike ride the following summer. Wow. And um, so he, you know, he's, that's part of it. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. Um, you know, people worry about me because sure. there's this notion that it's unsafe, which is rooted in some degree of reality. Um, but I would have to say the difference between cycling long distance six years ago and now is phenomenal. Drivers are so much more aware. Thank God. Yeah, and it's only going to get better. Yeah. Um, there could be more uh, bicycle lanes for sure. <laughs> there could be. Communities will hopefully start being built with that concept in mind. When I was happy to see that Nashville had them. When they I have them in places. Nashville. They're not completely connective, of course, mm-hmm. but they're out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Out there, so Andy had mentioned um, that you had gotten into an accident and something happened to your hand. I did. Um, I so I started my trip. It is now what August of 2016. I started. September. Thank goodness. I started in May of 2015, and my original objective was to ride in a continuous loop and return to Massachusetts by September. And I was going to take two months off the Thanksgiving Christmas holidays. So I left in May. I did the whole northern part of the country. I went up to Maine, did the whole north, went down to Denver, visited my family. I was in Seattle by Labor Day. I spent the whole fall on the West Coast. I spent 50 days in California. i fascinated by California. And I got to Phoenix by November where I put my bike up for repairs and I came home for two months. So then I returned in January to stay south and I crossed the rest of Arizona, all of New Mexico, all of Texas, all the way from El Paso to Port Arthur. That very, is very long. Feet. It is very long. Uh, anyway, and I went to New Orleans, which was fabulous. And I was in an accident on February 29th in the little town of Fairhope, Alabama. And I had to return home for four months. It was a bicycle accident? Yeah, it was a bicycle accident. On leap day. On leap day, right. An, an older gentleman in a Porsche turned in front of me and T-boned me, and that was that. On your bicycle? Yeah. Oh, so, so I'm very fortunate that I just had broken bones. I didn't have any organic damage or paralysis or anything like that. I mean, it was a serious accident, but was something I could get better from. So I had four months of rehab, and then I got the green light to proceed again in June, and I either had to decide to... Obviously, I was not going to go back to the Gulf Coast in early July and start riding my bike. So I either could wait a year and sort of pick up my thing, but I decided I didn't want to do that. So I I left from Massachusetts. So I'm doing essentially the final third in a kind of a reverse order of my original plans. And I will finish in Florida in December and then I will either bus or fly home or something. How is your body handling all of this? Bicycling is so easy. Okay, I'm going to ask a really personal question because yes. I'm so. Men have particular dangly parts. Yes. How in the world do you spend 60 miles a day smushing your dangly bits and not being. <laughs> For whatever reason, it doesn't bother me, and it does bother a lot of men. So, yeah. I mean, it's a totally legitimate question, and it's very concerning to many cyclists. Yeah. But I have to tell you, I have never found a comfortable bicycle seat, they don't exist. Yeah. Um, I just ride the basic one that my bike came with 
and it's no more less comfortable than anything else. Anything else. And for whatever reason, my plumbing all works fine. Oh, well, that's good. So, I mean, I'm just I lucky. I mean, if I regard. ride a bike all day, you know, I get home and she's pretty tingly. I say, <laughs> yep, doesn't happen to me. So We're sharing a lot yeah. right now. That's all right. We're friends. That's you know? right. We're breaking bread. That's right. <laughs> all right, so uh, Architecture by Moonlight. There's, uh, I was reading... Um, the little synopsis here, and I'm probably going to say his name incorrectly. Jenison. Uh, Jenison. Jenison. Spelled with a D. Yes, because Ooh, it's so cool. it's French for the word God. His the ah, his his, his, yeah, his name means yeah. Son of God. It's uh, D I E U. What a beautiful name. N I S O N. Jenison. Jenison. Yes. A, a wily Haitian orphan captured your heart. Yeah. Can you talk about that? So, well. Yeah, Jenison is, when I talk about children I'm responsible for, so I'm really responsible for four children. I have two by birth, and I have two children in Haiti. Uh, I met Jenison the second time I went to Haiti. So I went to Haiti in 2009, and it was a great trip, and I just loved the culture and the people. And then the earthquake happened. The next time I went was to do emergency relief uh, after the earthquake. So we were building temporary structures that were made out of two by fours with, with wrap and tents and that kind of stuff. It was very emergency stuff. And this little boy who was six at the time, he uh, came up and started handing me nails from my bucket. And he just, then he would follow me from house to house and then he, he was just inseparable and he was a little bit he was an he is an orphan actually he was an orphan even before the earthquake um, and the he was a kind of a rascal in that a lot of people didn't give him much credence called him a street kid if you're if you're labeled a street kid in Haiti it kind of just means that you know we're not going to spend any time on you you're just going to Whatever's going to happen is going to happen. Um, but I took a shine to him. I think I took a shine to him because he's really, he's very bright and creative and um, and rascally. Uh, he's definitely not a quiet, compliant little boy. And then every time I came to Haiti after that, I always saw Jenison. It was amazing. It was like he had a sixth sense. I could be gone for... Early on, I was only going every couple of months. It was only until con when construction started that I was going very regularly. And I always, always saw Jenison. And we just got to be more and more kind of connected. And he, at some point in time, uh, I kind of, uh, you know, adopted him in terms of taking care of him. I mean, he's Haitian. He's going to live in Haiti. He should live in Haiti. Uh, he also has a half brother whose name is Jerry, and uh, and at this not point get in time, name. <laughs> well, no, but it's also spelled D I E U. Really? D I E U R I E. Jerry. It's oh. Janison and Jerry. Yeah, so yeah. Um, and so, so I take care of both of those guys, and they're doing great. They're, How do you take care of them? What does that mean? Well, at this point in time, I make sure that they're they have a place to stay, they have meals, they go to school. I mean, I financially support them okay. at this point. Yeah. And they are... In Haiti, people go to school when they can. 
So it's not uncommon that you have long gaps. So right now, uh, Jenison is 13 and Jerry is 15 and they are in fourth and sixth grade. So they're a little behind the curveball. They're a little behind the curveball, but that's not unusual in Haiti. It's not unusual that you don't graduate high school until around age 20. So the real challenge gets to be when your, you know, teenage stuff kicks in. Can you stay focused enough to stay in school? <laughs> so we'll see yeah. whether they stay in school. Wow. Um, but they're good, they're good kids. They're very innovative. They're good for each other. Like they're half brothers. They had the same mother two different fathers and like so many siblings they're kind of our compliments to each other sure and jerry is quiet and stable and and he's a good influence on jenison <laughs> what happened to their mother do you know their mother died no i don't know any of the details about the when or the how do they know um um i tell the story of the time I was visiting Jenison, and I have to I have to confess, I am concrete when it comes to language. So for all I tried to learn Creole, I, I learned very little Creole all the time I spent there. Part of it is because Haitians really want to learn English, and, and it's obviously much more useful for them to know English than me to know Creole, but the other thing is I just have a concrete head for... So at one point I was talking to Jenison, and I had heard from a third party or, from, you know, from the ether that his mother had died and I wanted to understand what was going on. And Jenison, who's very theatrical, takes his head and he puts his head, leans it against his hands, makes a little prayer, tilts his head. This is where we need video to go with the audio. <laughs> and he says, Mama dormi, my mother's asleep. And then he shakes his hands wildly and laughs and runs off. So, what does that mean? <laughs> that is the that is the only thing I ever heard from Jenison about the fact that his mother died. I imagine it means he believes in heaven. Yes, yeah. I mean, so he just says, "Mom's asleep," and then he was laughing about it, and yeah. um, you know, it was just a one of those things you could translate it in a million ways. Yeah. How large is Haiti? How many Haiti is, could you fit in a Tennessee? Haiti is the size of Maryland. Oh, okay. So it's much, much smaller than Tennessee. Yeah. It has 10 million people. Good Lord. It is the most densely populated country in the Western Hemisphere. There are people everywhere. And they occupy a very small footprint. Because they don't have things so much. So, I mean, Port-au-Prince has 5 million people. And although from the air it looks like a sizable city... It doesn't seem that big when you're in it mm -hmm. because, you know, no other society has the amount of physical space per person that American cities have, you know, with the roads and the retail and apartments and all this kind of stuff. So Haitians are are um, very densely packed. And they have a, they, they're dealing with the HIV epidemic, correct? Has they gotten yes, although in a little bit? Or? I feel like that is... Um, that's kind of another example of kind of profiling. Oh. I mean, early on, there were four groups identified as high-risk HIV, uh, hemophiliacs, IV drug users, gay men, and Haitians. Mm -hmm. Okay, so Haitians, that is the only ethnicity 
that was identified that way. That's interesting. Yeah, and I think if there had been a lot of cases, say, in Japan or Germany, or God forbid the United States, we would have not said Germans are a high-risk group. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's, yes, people in Haiti have HIV, and maybe they have it at a higher rate than other places. That's pretty high in America. But (laughs) it's not, it's not... It's not. Ex- it is nowhere near the rate, say, that was among gay men in the 1980s. Yeah, you know, before right. we understood means of transmission. Sure, sure. So, um, yeah, it's it's it is true that ha- that HIV is more prevalent in Haiti, but it's also a racist thing. Oh, why okay. why we are saying Haitians are a high risk group? That's interesting. I have no idea. See, yeah. I'm glad we're talking about it. Yeah, and I mean, it is. There are all kinds, but there are all kinds of diseases in Haiti. You know, sure. there's cholera. Um, and that there's been a huge epidemic of cholera since the uh, earthquake as a result of that. Because the bodies, well, we don't have they don't have sanitary water and they don't have yeah. clean uh, su- they don't have sewer systems. They, we don't they don't have the essentials of public health that we have. Here and in they the don't United have States. anything that the United States is interested in, so we don't go and help them. Is that kind of a big? Uh, we, I feel like we help countries where we have an interest to help them. We have there's land or there's oil or there's you know, minerals in the soil or, right. you know, then we say, hey, you're worthy. Right. We don't have an economic interest in Haiti. We keep trying to have an economic interest in Haiti because we like to think of Haiti. You realize Haiti is only an hour and a half flight from Miami and it's an overnight boat ride. So when people do business plans, okay, as people do in the United States, and they look at what it, the time it takes to manufacture a trinket in Taiwan or Cambodia or China and ship it by boat to Long Beach and ship it by rail over to the East Coast, they say, ah, why don't we just make these things in Haiti, right? Because we have this cheap labor there. But the difference is that Haitian culture is so completely different than the cultures of Asia that it's just not going to happen. I mean, the largest aid, quote-unquote, aid project after the hurricane, uh, I'm sorry, after the earthquake, hurricanes are a whole other thing. I lived through two hurricanes there, too. Uh, After the earthquake was this giant factory that they built in Capetian. Capetian was miles, miles away from the earthquake. Uh, The only suffering it had was that a whole lot of people fled to there. But the... um, the United States government and other groups built a very, very large factory in Capetian to manufacture goods that would be available to sell in the United States. Haitians will not work for the man. That's that's like my number one idea of Haitians. It doesn't matter if he's a French plantation owner or the U.S. Marines or a multinational corporation or a guy building an orphanage for his daughter. If you don't if you don't align your interests with theirs, nothing happens. I mean, just... Not. What so is their th- interests, then? Their interests are to be content. Oh, that's they, a good one. <laughs> as I always say, if you ask a Haitian, would you like better food? They will say yes. Would you like better health care? Yes. Would you like more secure housing? Yes. Would you like to be like an American? No. So, So it's like, you know, individually... The things, that, yeah, they, they're interested in certain things. But in general, life in Haiti is pretty nice. I mean, I always remark that I walked home from work every day, every day, and there was, you're never out of earshot of laughter and singing. 
How, how, where can I say in this country that I walk around and I hear laughter and singing all the time? I mean, all the time. You know, I always remark that I spent uh, all these months in Haiti after the earthquake. Never, never once did I hear any Haitian say, why did this happen to us? Haitians accept what happens. Their life was hard before the earthquake. Their life was hard after the earthquake. It's hard in a different way. Huh. It's just, it's just I, I would love to believe that if an earthquake of that magnitude, if something happened in this country that wiped out 3% of our population, that's a lot of people, that we would have the resiliency and the acceptance to understand that we don't control everything. I mean, I know I'm running around asking people how we will live tomorrow, which we, we totally don't control that, right? But it's that, that understanding of, well, I can influence, I can try to make life, I can try to work towards a direction that I want to go, but at the same time, I cannot guarantee I'll go there. Haitians are, they're accepting of what happens. So I'm curious, you're asking Americans this question, did you ask Haitians the same question? No, actually, and it's, it's an interesting thing about like, I mean, this whole question thing came up way after Haiti. I haven't been to Haiti in a year and a half now. Mm-hmm. I've been on my bike. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting to think about asking that question or some other question in another country. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, this particular project was I really wanted to un- get a deeper understanding of my own country because I really love the United States. And I really, I really try to always see the there's so much good about what we have done but there are so many challenges about continuing what we have done in an unbridled way Mm -hmm. Um, so that's why I just I wanted to ask the question here have you answered the question yourself? I promise to answer the question when I am finished Okay. I feel like if I answered if I responded now then it would imply a bias about the way other people respond. Mm, that makes sense. So I... Um, that you don't want people to pander to something that they think you want them to say. Yeah. I I, I, I try to have as open an experience as possible. Because people also say, well, what are you going to do with this? Are you going to write another book? And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. You know? I don't, I don't know that I need to or want to write another book. Right now this lives online, which is clearly tomorrow. Uh, <laughs> as opposed to a book, and uh, and it's just unfolding. Mm-hmm. I have inadvertently, or started out inadvertently, but now I acknowledge it and I embrace it. I've created a really cool community of all the people who've been involved in my project. I mean, there's thousands of people who have participated, either through responding to my question, or the logistics of it, or putting me up. And um, to me, that's an incredible kind of resource and group of people that I've connected. And so I do, uh, I do feel a responsibility to that community that I have created. And then hopefully whatever community will grow from that. But I don't, I don't know what that will look like yet. You know, I still have three more months of bicycling to do. Mm -hmm. 
and then we'll see. Oh, that's that wonderful. Where's your next, after Tennessee, where do you go? So I am doing what I call the inner loop. I have to go up to Kentucky, and then I have to go over to Missouri, Kansas, Oklahoma, and Arkansas. Mm-hmm. And that will finish everything, except I never got to Florida, because I had my accident in Fairhope, Alabama. <laughs> So after Arkansas, I am going to then, and the truth is I didn't spend as much time in Mississippi and stuff as I wanted to anyway. I'm going to go across Arkansas and then go through Mississippi and Alabama and then go down and finish in Florida. So my game plan now is to finish in, in uh, St. Augustine. Mm, I love St. Augustine. I've never been there. It's beautiful. My trip is all about places that I've never been um, in terms of touristing things. And then seeing people, it's kind of been this like recap of my life. I have four brothers and sisters who live in three states. I have 12 nieces and nephews who live in eight different states. I have friends from high school, college, all over. I'm seeing all kinds of people. And so I go to places where I know people, and then I go to places that I haven't been. So if people want to reach out to you, how might they do that? So I go to howwillwelivetomorrow.com. And that has my contact information. And I love it when people just send me written responses or even, um, you know, little videos of how we will live tomorrow. I'm always looking for something that's not words. Uh, Yeah, everybody that participates in any way, even if it's remotely, uh, gets included up on the website. And, And then if there's anybody listening in any of those places or know anybody in those places, I... I stay places and meet people by referrals. Yeah. It's how I have helped to kind of grow this network. I, this morning was when I heard of you. <laughs> and so and here you are. So I, th- <laughs> yes. And okay. That's so the power of. How did, how did I learn about you? Okay. I have a friend named Perry Carrison. Perry Carrison introduced me to a woman named Pete Parsons who was in Houston, Texas. And I met Pete and I stayed with Pete and she has been so enthralled with my project. She's connected with me with multiple other people, but you don't know Pete. Pete got in touch with someone else who said, talk to Susan Ruth. That's so so you, so you and I are like five, five degrees. Yeah. Five degrees separated. And huh. here we are sitting in your kitchen. Well, there you go. Um, Kevin Bacon must be in there somewhere. Kevin Bacon, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> six degrees. Or, or he's right. seven degrees. Maybe Kevin Bacon is seven degrees. No, no, because we're six degrees from every other human. Yeah, okay. So right. maybe it's five degrees right. with Kevin Bacon. For right. Sure. Paul, thank you so much for being on the podcast on Hey Human, and I wish you great success in this. I can't wait to hear what everybody continues to say. It's very exciting. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. It has been great. It's been great talking to you. It's great to meet you, you after such a short courtship. <laughs> <laughs> we just met. Yes. And um, yeah, I will look forward to asking you the question. Yes. And everybody, as usual, um, there'll be links on, on heyhumanpodcast.com um, to, to get in touch with Paul as well. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. Yeah.